Today's episode is brought to you by Online Tennis Instruction. OTI is one of the premier online instructional programs designed to improve weak serves, forehands, and backhands with progressive video training and laser-focused personalized video feedback. I've gone through many of the courses already, and the information on here is fantastic. Our guest today, Steve Johnson, has a serve that helped him get all the way to top 20 in the world. And when you review OTI's serving program, you'll notice all of the key principles and checkpoints in Steve's serve. You might not be able to hit the ball 125 miles an hour like Steve, but your power, consistency, and accuracy will all improve dramatically if you consistently follow the progressions in OTI's training program. Listeners to the podcast can redeem a free four-week all-access pass to OTI by visiting the link moreservepower.com. This includes one free, personalized video review from an OTI-certified instructor of your choice. This free trial is not available anywhere else, so go to the show notes and click on the link moreservepower.com to get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the 41st episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Steve Johnson. Steve is one of the most accomplished collegiate players of all time, having won four NCAA team championships and two individual NCAA championships, including a 72-match win streak. He reached a career-high ranking of 21st in singles and 39th in doubles on the ATP Tour, and won an Olympic bronze medal in doubles at the 2016 Olympics. On today's episode, we discuss how he improved at college, what he thinks about when hitting forehands, and how he tries to make his opponents uncomfortable. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Steve, welcome to the pod. Yeah, glad to be here. So for the listener who doesn't know your full story, I'm going to give them a brief recap, but you were a top... 10 junior, uh, one of the best juniors in the country, and you went to USC, Southern Cal, not the South Carolina where I'm from, and in a very short period of time became one of the most, if not the most dominant college players of all time. You won two individual NCAA titles, seven-time All-American, and one of the more impressive things that I know of, which is a 72-match win streak. And just to put that in perspective, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Diana Schneider is at NC State, and she's currently top 100 WTA, and she has lost two or three dual matches this spring. So to put in what you did doing it over multiple years, 72, is insane. My first question is kind of what happened to you from that senior year in high school or junior senior year in high school to leapfrog your peers and even some people older than you to become that dominant of a collegiate player? Yeah, it's, you know, it's obviously a very not complicated answer, but it it takes a lot of time. There's no easy answer to that. You know, when I was, if if I kind of even go back further, I was top five in the country in the 12s and 14s. And then, you know, in the 16s and 18s, I was probably closer to top 20. You know, I I don't, unless I'm completely misremembering a lot of this stuff, I was closer to that. You know, I wasn't really in contention to win singles tournaments at, at the highest national level. I never did international events and then once I kind of knew that USC is where I wanted to go, everything kind of worked out, at least, you know, for me going there to, to that standpoint to play for Peter, you know, there was a lot to learn. There was a big, big learning curve for me come, let's say, I got to think about the years, 2000, when I finished high school, 2008, to when I, you know, started in the fall of 2008, 
you know, I worked out with Peter quite a bit that summer and a few of the guys on the team. And it was very eye-opening to me what I lacked in a physicality standpoint pretty much from day one. You know, as a kid, I, I got away with talent. I got away with kind of just being better than everybody else or, or at least better than the other guys who were maybe my age. And, and then once I got to college, I, I got very lucky with the guys that were on the team with Peter at the helm and just having them push me from a tennis on the court and off the court aspect of really kind of showing me what, what work ethic was, how, you know, I never worked out in the gym seriously. I never knew what that life was. And that's something to me that I learned very quickly and I really enjoyed and I still enjoy to this day. And I think that was the biggest jump for me at that point was my physicality. I was, I was a bit, you know, you can ask a few people. I was a bit soft around, around the edges, um, you know, physically and, and mentally. And I, you know, think being on a team and having 10, 12 guys and coaches and, you know, feel like a university pushing you is what really made a huge jump for me, you know, in tennis. Um, and a lot of that was off the court affecting my on court, you know, obviously you want to get better as a tennis player. And I feel like I did, you know, immensely, but the off court stuff really pushed my tennis to another level those first couple of years. Can you elaborate? We just had Gil Reyes on. I just released his episode this week, and he was talking about his weak legs command, strong legs obey, and he was talking about how you don't even know how your tactics are getting influenced by being out of shape. When you got in that better shape at USC, is there a tangible way that you could kind of see that taking place in your actual tennis game? Yeah, you know, pretty quickly I could feel like, because there would definitely be times when I was 17, 18, even maybe beginning of college where I was like, you know, if I don't win this in the next, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I know that like my, my engine is going to, is going to run, is running on E and then I'm going to have to rely on, you know, some shenanigans or some lucky shots or some just kind of red line tennis that's going to carry me to the finish line. And that was something that I didn't want to ever affect me to lose a match was, you know, and, and that's something that I really got better at in college especially and, and and all of that was in a two out of three format and back then we played with with ads and and everything so the matches could be a bit longer and then you know that transition to the tour was even a bigger jump for me because i was just having this conversation with one of a couple of the young kids the other day that you know when i started i was maybe one and seven one and eight in five set matches and now since then i think i'm like nine and two or eight and two something like that so I just felt like that aspect was so important to me. It gave me just another basically tool in the toolbox to, to win matches. When things weren't going away, I could use my legs. I could use that and know that there was something that I could really fall back on when, you know, last, you know, obviously the last stand sometimes uh, for me is to run like a, like a, you know, like a chicken with my head cut off from behind the baseline and just make balls. But when all else fails, I knew I could go to that, I wouldn't call it a strategy. I'd call it um, a backup plan um, and, and very down, very far down the list at that. But I felt like that was a huge piece to my my mental game as well. You know, making my physical game better made my mental game know that I could stay and outlast guys in all these matches. I would guess that that last ditch tactic of just making balls, which, by the way, if you make the last shot in a point, you win it. It's just tough physically and you obviously have to keep the ball deep. But you don't win 72 matches in a row playing great every day, I assume. When in the streak, I'm going to guess that you didn't start keeping track of a streak when you had like five or seven wins in a row. So at what point in that streak were you like, oh, wow, like I, I got a little something cooking here? And then 
what was the pressure like as that streak went on and on and you knew people were taking their shot at you? You know, it, I find this interesting because I obviously get asked this question a lot. You know, my, when I was a junior, you never thought about it. You know, I was, when I started the streak, I had, you know, for us out on the West coast, we have a, a individual tournament called Sherwood. And it's usually back when I played, it was us, Baylor, UCLA, and there maybe Stanford uh, were the four schools that would come and they would all send eight guys and, you know, whatever we play. A, in the, and it, it was an individual tournament. And I remember I lost in the, finals of that i think the bradley clon and then you know we started dual matches so it, it's kind of a weird because in college it's not I, I think it would be impossible to do that in in a tournament format where you have to you know first round to finals every week but i i honestly truly looked at it as you know we would play cal on friday stanford on saturday okay let's get it's one match, one match. And then you'd play the next week, you would play Oregon and Washington. It's one match, one match. And the next week you would play UCLA. So it was always just one match. It was always just one match or one, let's go beat this school. Let's go beat this school. And I had a, I was a competitive son of a gun um, in college. I didn't like to lose, didn't want to lose, didn't want my team to lose, you know. So I took it at that. And, you know, I had the, you know, with Peter in charge, with George, Brett, Eric Amond and these guys that were all the coaches at the time, it was always just one step forward. Let's what's this next one? What's this next one? And nobody ever talked about it. We didn't talk about it. I honestly didn't really care to talk about it, at least in my junior year. Um, Cause you just wanted to win, you know? And then all of a sudden we, we won team. I hadn't lost. I won individuals. And I think I was at like 35 or 36 in a row, something like that after junior year. And then obviously that kind of sets in and then you have, I mean, I didn't play college tennis until seven, eight months later because I took the fall off my senior year. So I didn't even really think about it because obviously all summer I lost, you know, I lost every week. You know, I played Futures and Challengers and the U.S. Open. I mean, I played 15-ish tournaments probably and lost 15 times in singles. So it wasn't like I hadn't lost for years, but there was definitely a couple close calls in there I, I can remember, but it was always just put your head down and, and go battle. You know, I never thought about that. I always just, at the end of the day, I wanted to win a fourth NCAA team title. That was goal number one. And then, you know, goal number two for me was to win individual NCAA titles because a lot of guys have won that twice, but not a lot of guys had won the team four times. And we were in a very special position to do that. And that was by far number one uh, goal for me. And, you know, after I won that and after the team won that and then I won individuals, it was just like, you know, there was no, I mean, obviously you can't really write something better for me. You know, that was, couldn't be a better ending in, in college career that I, that I could have ever written on paper. So now it's kind of silly to talk about sometimes just, you know, cause a lot of these younger guys now on tour will come up and be like, Oh, we, you know, we only won 10 matches in a row. There's no way we can get to 72 or whatever the number was, you know, it's like, you know, I just never even thought about it. I just kept going and just, just tried to win, you know, get one point on the board every day for, for the, for the Trojans. And that was, that was the goal. So 72 in a row, at least in college, I'm sure confidence was super high and you probably had a little bit of a feeling of invincibility. If the match got deep, you know, you've been there now 60 straight times or 65 straight times and you've gotten it done. And then you make a transition to the pro tour and you get up to 21 in the world. You won four titles I won't say the exact number. Someone can look it up online, but you've made millions of dollars in prize money. Yeah. And I think your career record, at least on the ATB website, is 196 and 201. It's yeah. 500. 
Yeah. And so was that difficult transitioning and going, man, I'm used to winning a lot. And now basically every week you play, you come away with a loss. Was that a difficult transition? Super difficult. <laughs> super, super, super difficult. Had a lot of tough phone calls to make out on the road, you know, to Peter, to coaches, to mom, to dad, to you name it. I'd call anybody to figure out if I was doing the right thing because I played my first tournament, Newport Pro Tournament, Newport, Rhode Island, as a pro um, after my senior year. And I lost to somebody who played like six or seven for Duke, like prior to my time. And I was like, wait, I lost? This is weird. You know, like this is not right. And all this stuff kind of creeps in. But when, when I was that young and that fresh, I was just itching to go. I wanted to go every week. Let's play, let's play, let's play. And then after a while, after like three, four or five months, I was like, okay, like I'm, I've lost every week, you know, every week I'm a, you know, not a loser, but you know, there's one guy at the end of the week that wins and it's not, and it took me 18 months to figure that out. And Craig Boynton, who was with me for a big part of my career, professional career was instrumental with that. You know, he would always be like, look, like we need to be practical about professional tennis. We started this like mantra, like I either won or I learned. There was no winning or losing. You know, I needed to be practical. I needed to take things with a grain of salt. Like not every win is going to take me to the to the moon and not every loss is going to put me six feet under. So, and that took a long time for me. My confidence was way up, way down, you know, and you can't do that in this world. It's just, you know, it, it's not about how you do every one week a year. It's your body of work for 10 to 11 months or 25, 30 tournaments, whatever number it is you want to play. And that was the hardest, hardest part for me. And it took me a long time. You know, I'd, there was a lot of times where I questioned in the first couple of years that I don't think I was good enough. I didn't think I belonged. You know, I thought maybe my best tennis and was behind me. And thankfully, I had Peter, who I could call, who would give me good information or, or different information. I could call my dad, obviously, and he would, you know, obviously want what's best for me. And then sometimes I would call my mom and um, she would probably not like me telling this, but she would give me the tough love uh, and be like, you know, basically like suck it up. Life is hard. I would probably throw in a few more words. We weren't on a family friendly podcast, but, you know, she she was tough, not in a bad way, but, you know, sometimes you need a kick in the rear. Like I was 23 24 at the time. And I'm like, you know, questioning what I'm doing. And it's like, you don't even know what you're doing yet. You know, you need to go and put your head down and go to work. You know, life isn't easy. It doesn't always come in a straight line, you know, so you got to take the good with the bad. And thankfully that I had great people around me that, that really pushed me and, and believed in me. And, and ultimately, obviously I believed in myself and some days I needed somebody else to tell me that. And, and I am very thankful for that. One thing I tell the kids I work with, a lot of them are maybe 14 to 17. They're sectional players. They're hoping to play D1. And if I said, hey, you know, would you be happy if, in your instance, if you could win 72 straight matches in college, win four team titles, and win two individual titles, you think you'd be pretty confident and everything would be easy? They'd probably be like, oh, yeah, it's great. And then here you are, you know, a couple months out of school, and you're questioning yourself, and you have doubt, and you've got demons, and... One thing I'm always stressing to everybody is you never outperform those doubts. Whatever you get to, you were 20 in the world, can you be 10? If you were 100, can you get to seated in a slam? And everybody is constantly trying to fight those battles. One thing for sure, most players kind of go, win, I played good, loss, I played bad. 
Did you ever get to the point where you said, I'm just evaluating my performance? So if you beat someone lower than you, but you didn't do the right things, you kind of left and said, hey, I got I to get to work. That wasn't right. And if you played great against the top seed and you lost, did you kind of go, hey, confidence builder, I'm, I'm on the right track. I just need you know a couple more weeks to cook. Yeah, I think it, a lot of that, you know, in, in different, you know, parts and pieces, you know, I can remember, I want to say it was 20, I can't keep my years straight anymore. It was either 2014 or 2015. I was in Cincinnati. I was kind of like getting my, you know, my ski, my boots underneath me. I felt comfortable playing on tour. I was top 100. I was 80s probably, you know, I was like, you know, getting into events and I was at Cincinnati and I was in the third round or Man, I can't remember if it was round of 16 or quarters. I think round of 16, I was playing Rayonich, who at the time was top 10. And I was serving, I believe I was serving up 5-4 in a third set breaker. And I lost 7-5. Like, you know, one of those big moments kind of thing, master series, top 10, whatever, you know, the whole thing. And I lost that match. And I came off the court. And that was the first time I really felt like, okay, I'm gutted because I just gave, I felt like I gave away an opportunity on, you know, serving kind of have the balls on, on my racket to finish this match. But I was like, okay, like I was there. I know what I need to do. I know how I can play. I know I belong with these guys. I just need to kind of move the needle just a little bit more or do something just a little bit extra. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, like I can be practical about these losses. Like, you know, this, this was a moment for me. I can remember it, you know, no problem. CB and I really talked about it. it that was a big moment for, for me, for us, for, for all of us. And it just felt like I kind of took off from there. You know, I didn't let it affect my next week. I went to Winston-Salem. I think I made semis, went to the U S open, won a match, you know, kind of things. So like, you just kind of keep this momentum building. And it was one of those things, but maybe like a year prior I, I could have not folded but i would have you know i would have let that loss linger for another tournament or two tournaments and you can't let that happen in this world like when it's done it's done you got to put it behind you what did i learn from that and how do we move on and that was the biggest biggest thing that i needed to learn in my career especially from college you know i needed to learn how to lose i needed to learn that it wasn't always going to be my fault or I choked or I'm not very good or, you know, all those negative thoughts that everybody has, you know, some days the guy just plays good. Some days you play poorly. Some days you made the wrong decision, but if you can look back and see that and learn from that and not make the same mistake twice, that's really all that matters. Aside from the mindset you were just speaking about, you know, you said the biggest difference from junior to college was kind of that physicality. Was there an on-court difference that you noticed right away going from college to the pros? You know, I wouldn't say it's like a huge difference. Obviously, I was playing one in my last couple of years. So I was playing guys that were ultimately going to be top 100 tour players or challenger players, you know, between the 100 and 200. So the, the, the level was high. I would say the biggest difference that I felt, you know, coming from college to pro, it's going to be kind of an easy answer, kind of a tricky answer. But in college, you can get guys that will take days off you never know what happened. Maybe they had an all nighter. They all you know, had to study for a test or they just weren't very disciplined and they went out and partied the night before or, you know, all these other things they could have mentally be frazzled or, you know, whatever. And then you get to the tour and you play these guys and you, you ultimately realize like this is a job, you know, it doesn't feel like a job, but it is a job. 
and you don't know what the other guy on the side of the net is playing for, who he's supporting. Maybe he's, you know, playing for his family back home, and this is how he supports his whole family. So you're going to get everybody's best effort every single day. They are going to fight, claw, scratch, compete for every point, and, you know, that little bit of difference. So the tennis necessarily may not be leaps and bounds better, but I think the competitor inside the individual is just rock solid from top to bottom. You know, in college you get a lot of maybe easier wins, guys kind of fold and just kind of go quietly into the night. And if that happens on tour, you like take it and you just move on. You go, that's a gift and let's, you know, let's do better the next day kind of thing. So that was like a, a really big piece of, this is a job. This is our, their livelihood. This is how they support themselves, their family, you name it. I don't know everybody's position, but that's kind of how I viewed it as the, their competitive nature. I'd like to talk a little bit about your game uh, on court. Obviously, I had a, a front row seat a couple times coaching in college against you, and I just remember you had just an incredible forehand. And there are ways that you can hurt people with depth, with spin, pace, height, angles, whatever you want. How do you use your forehand to cause problems for your opponents? Yeah, for me, it's simple. You know, if you're, I guess if you're a casual fan or maybe don't know the X's and O's of tennis a little deeper than, you know, than maybe the whatever, you know, you would look at my game and be like, great forehand, good serve, horrific backhand. And other than that, maybe there's some intangibles, whatever, you know, that's kind of how you would maybe see my game if you were just looking at a broad spectrum. And, you know, it's just funny because I use my game to get to my strengths, you know, just like everybody else does. You know, I use my slice to put guys into awkward positions to then hit forehands. I use my slice on the backhand to get guys out of position to then come in forward and put volleys away. You know, I want to play a very dynamic athletic style of game that a lot of guys don't like, you know, it's not very meat and potatoes. You know, I'm going to, if I get a hold of my forehand, I want to keep hitting the forehand. I want to stay in control at that point. You better believe that. And then, you know, it, that's, that's where I want to live. You know, I'm not afraid to litter the stat sheet on that side because I know that's what I do best. And, you know, it's one of those things where if I miss 10 forehands in a row, in my mind, you better believe I'm going to make the 11th. And if I miss the 11th, I'm going to make the 12th. Whatever it might be, I'm going to keep firing and I'm going to keep going for it, you know, and that's, that's a huge piece of my, my, you know, my vision, how I see my game. And hopefully, you know, that's how other people will, will see it in the long term. I'm curious if you have a number here in mind, but you know, if you're behind the baseline, one thing I'm talking to players all about, you know, you're deep in the court, you've got to play with some height. And I always try to tell them if you're watching a pro, the angle on the screen, a lot of times you can't see when they're lifting the ball. When you're behind, maybe on clay, whatever, but if you're deep behind the baseline, how high over the net are you hitting that forehand, generally speaking? Yeah, for me, it's going to be higher than most guys because I hit it with a lot of spin and I want a lot of the, kind of that revolution on the ball. But it's, it's, that is the hard part because when you watch tennis on TV, you don't see the angle. You just see the ball kind of going back and forth. It's very linear, but when you get courtside or you get behind, you know, the net clearance is incredible on a lot of these guys. Obviously, I vary quite drastically on forehand to backhand, but when I am behind the baseline, I want it to be 10, 12, 15 feet above the net, heavy with spin to kind of push that guy back. If I'm that far back, you know, I want to try and do something to push them back. 
So I've got to, you know, put that ball high, heavy, deep into a corner or deep near the baseline to kind of get them at least not on their toes to back up just a little bit. That way I can kind of gain some ground. It's, I mean, tennis is just a giant chess match. You know, he, my opponent's going to make a move. I'm going to make a counter move. He's going to make a move. I'm going to do something else. And if, if, if I can do something better than he can, I'm going to try and exploit that, you know, time and time again. But if I'm deep that far behind the baseline, I want to hit the ball high, heavy, 10, 12, 15 feet above the net with some, with some oomph to it to, you know, not just with height, but I want to hit some, some, some velocity behind it. So I can also push the guy back rather than just kind of air it out and give myself maybe a, a split second more to, to scoot back towards the line. I'm going to make that an Instagram video for sure. Cause it's like pulling teeth to get someone to go like three feet over the net. They're like, geez, like a moon. Yeah. Like, God, what do you want me to do here? And I'm like, three feet is yeah. like nothing. That's, that's pretty standard. I mean, I, it's funny cause obviously Mark who, who I've worked with the last few years, you know, is very into the numbers and works with the analytics side of things. And I'm not somebody that needs all that information, but I do like to have it. You know what I mean? Like, but I don't need it because I don't want to be, have a little paralysis thinking about numbers too much while I'm out there. I want to kind of play free with some big talking points, but I want to know that like, Hey, like we can look at certain matches, be like, I played well this match. What was different? Oh, well, you know, the ball was Hawkeye says the ball, your, your average ball was three feet over the net, not four or five, whatever that, you know, that may be. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where you've got to have some height to the ball. You know, it's, there's a few guys that play super linear like that, but it's, it's tough. There's, it's not, and obviously more on the female side, it's definitely going to be more so, but on the men's side, it's definitely not the, not that way. Do you have any simple swing thoughts on your forehand that have stuck with you throughout your career that, that kind of help you execute your forehand on a consistent basis? Um, the good thing for me is my, on my forehand side, sometimes less is more. When I see ball, I hit ball. That's kind of my motto. Not, you know, but in, if we're going to get technical for me, when I'm not hitting balls well, I get very open, you know, I get very open. My left arm, obviously not to this extent, but if you watch like a Golbus from five or six years ago, the way he had his left arm kind of like as a stop, as like a crossing guard kind of thing, that's horrible for me. I like to keep my left side in. I want to imagine there's like, a, you know, basically a foot rope in between, you know, my left and right wrist. And I want to turn with one, turn all the way back. And then obviously at impact, you know, you're going to let the left arm go through, but I want to stay closed as much as possible with that arm. Cause once I get open with the left side, everything kind of goes away. My power goes away. My timing is a little bit off, but so that's the biggest thing that I focus on when things are not going well on the forehand. That's great. And I do want to touch, I, I do want to touch on your slice. Cause I remember how nasty that is. And even though you don't come over it a lot, there's a huge benefit to that shot you're playing. Can you just describe kind of you said you use it to set up your forehand and brad stein and um dustin taylor talked about like slice and sting you know we use that slice to set up our forehand can you kind of explain to the listener what that looks like yeah so for me it, it's i don't but you know the way i want to play is i want to make my opponent as uncomfortable as possible um so for me that's heavy forehand that's going to have a lot of you know the top spin that bounces up like i want them to hit one ball above their shoulders and then the next ball, if I have to hit a slice, I want them to hit it by their ankles. I don't want them hitting the same shot over and over again. And if I can execute my slice hard, flat, low, you know, that kind of thing to, to keep it low and below the net, my opponent has to ultimately hit the ball up, which then gives me time to hit forehands. So it's kind of one of those things where 
I just, if I can just only hit forehands, obviously super great, you know, super ideal. Let's do that. But if I'm going to hit slices, I'm going to hit one cross, two cross, one line, you know, then the next one short cross. I just want to kind of poke and prod my opponent until I can get a forehand that I can really sink my teeth into and take control of the point. And that's the biggest thing for me is I want my slice to be low and I want them to hit, you know, balls from their kneecaps and ankles. And then the next one on the forehand, I want them to hit the ball from chest or shoulder height. So it's like, they're just getting this different variation of, of height nonstop. They, you know, and it's, and it's going to be frustrating. And it's also tough to generate a lot of pace if I'm hitting my slice, right? So it, it's one of those things where, you know, I want them to maybe have to press and have to push rather than me having to press and push on the backhand side, you know, but it, it's just, you know, and some guys have no issue with my slice and they are very frustrating to play. And some guys can't stand it. And it's like taking candy from a baby. So it's, it's just weird how, you know, it's, it's a matchup thing in, in our world. And it's just one of those things where that's the way I want to play. So we're going to finish up with a few Instagram questions. And actually, before we do, I've got one question that's that's mine, but it doesn't really flow with anything we've been talking about. Yeah. But uh, Pagula, Jesse Pagula came on, and she mentioned, I'm pretty sure it was you, um, you and Tiafo at the Olympics, you were talking about practice tickles. Can you explain what a tickle no, is? No, no, that wasn't me. That was, um, it wasn't me because I didn't go. They were in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't go to Tokyo. I ended up not going to Tokyo. I was in Rio. Are you, so it must are, have been TFO and somebody else. Are, are, are you a tickle originator, though? I, I know she mentioned your name. She said that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because, you know, for me, there's a lot of guys that will go. Everybody's so different. You know, like it's, you know, some guys need to hit 4,000 balls and they need to feel perfect. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, I got to, if I don't do all these reps, I don't feel prepared. You know, whether it's pre-match, day before a match, whatever. And I'm, you know... I'm somebody that's, I like a light tickle. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I call it. And I got that, I got that, um, that phrase from, we kind of, from Robbie Ginepri, you know, he would be like, you know, let's just get a light tickle out there, you know? And for me, I want to go out there get a little sweat, have some fun. You know, if you're warming up for a match for me, it's usually two and a half hours, three hours before in our world, you never know when you're going to play. So it's always like warm up. So it's not like you're, you're an NBA guy, you know, we're shooting jump shots and then two minutes later you start the game where you want to feel locked in. So it's, it's like, I just get a light tickle, get a sweat and I go have a laugh for a couple hours. And then, you know, 30 minutes before, 15 minutes before whoever I'm with Mark or Peter or whoever, like we lock in and we go over the game plan and we, we lock in, you know, that's kind of my thing. But yeah, I guess I would be one of the originators of that. Um, I guess out of context, it would be kind of an interesting, interesting uh, way to phrase my warm ups and maybe, maybe my practice some days, but um, I am getting older in this tennis world, so sometimes less is more out there for me. Okay, so now to the real Instagram questions. Uh, this person wanted to know, what is the best piece of coaching advice you've ever received? Um, I mean, there's going to be a couple from, from really, you know, the biggest coaches. I mean, obviously my dad growing up was my coach forever. I mean, he really taught me how to love the game how to really enjoy the game. You know, this is something that obviously when you're in the moment, it's harder to see. But now that I'm, you know, at this age and, and you know, everything that's happened, I'm, I can look back with, you know, with some clarity on, on what he was trying to get across. And, you know, with Peter at USC, he was always somebody that 
just believed in me. He pushed me hard. You know, there was times where he showed me tough love, but he never, that tough love never wavered and his support, you know, so he was always somebody that I could call and he could give me what I didn't want to hear, you know, and sometimes, you know, that's exactly what I needed to hear, but I just didn't want to hear it. And then from CB, you know, somebody who I was with for a long time was, you know, I think it was basically the the winning or, or learning kind of aspect of my professional career. And it took me a while to do that. But once I got the hang of it, that was a huge piece for me. And that is, you know, something I still take to this day. I get asked this question a lot, and I actually don't know the answer. I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, this person, you know, you had success going from college to the pros, and now you see a guy like Ben Shelton just shooting up so quickly. They wanted to know if they think it, if you think it's easier now to make that college to pro jump or if it was easier back when you made it in 2012, 13. You know, I think it's just different. You know, I think it's a it's it's different. So when I was coming out, the only other American that was top 100 college player, I want to say was Isner. You know, there was Kevin Anderson. There was Sam Devarman, you know, Benny Becker, like guys like that. But obviously, as an American, I looked up to John, you know, like he was for me was was a big piece to that. So obviously I saw him and you don't see a lot of similarities with me and him just because he has the best serve in the history of tennis. So but I knew I could do it and I I knew that I mean he helped me, you know, and the older American guys James Blake, you know, those kind of guys, Marty Fish, you name it, but I think it's a big piece for Ben Shelton and these, you know, Kovacevic and some of these younger guys coming out of college. They see their their companions, their, their birth years, or these guys, Tommy Pauls, Taylors, Rileys, Brooksby's, Francis, you name it, Sebastian Corda doing it. And they believe that they can do it. And they're a close group. And once one guy does it, and the next guy says, well, I'm just as good as that guy. Why can't I do that? So I think, you know, it breeds, they just kind of, it, it breeds each other, you know, like success is contagious. And if these guys all keep pushing each other forward, it's it's going to be contagious. And I think there's going to be another group of college guys that come out, whether it be one, two, three, or four years, whatever they want to stay. But, you know, Ben is definitely going to be great, and he's going to be a great ambassador for the sport and college tennis, you know, for guys doing that because, you know, he went that route. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be great to watch these young guys kind of push each other, you know, and, you know, during my years, myself, Bradley Klon, Ryan Williams, you know, Jack Sock didn't go to college, but was close with us, Dennis Kudla. And now, you know, so it's, it's just kind of one of those things where you want to have a group around you that is all in to the tennis aspect of things and who just push each other to get better. You know, that's, that's all it is because you don't, even though we're an individual sport, we're like a little family out there. You know, all of us are rooting for each other unless we're playing them. And then we want to beat them as badly as possible, obviously. But at the end of the day, we, you know, I watch watching the French Open right now, and I'm, you know, if there's an American on, I'm going to root for him. You know, that's all we want to see. Last uh, question. I can't wait to hear how you answer this one, and something that will help them. But I want to know. They want to know what your best advice is for the four O singles player. For the four O, you know, for me, I've always tried to say, you just you want to have fun. I mean, that's such a silly, stupid answer, but you want to have fun. You know, I tell even, I tell the kids, I don't care if you're 12, 15, 18, I still do it now. If I don't, if I'm not having fun on the tennis court, I stop. I, you know, I, I take a break, whether that be a five minute, 10 minute, or maybe I'm done for the day, but I always just try and get better. 
it's just something that tennis, obviously at four Oh is a hobby. You know, it's obviously not going to be a profession, you know, surround yourself with the right people that you want to have fun with, that you're going to enjoy it. Cause tennis for me is the sport you can play forever. You know, I, I walk by, you know, with my daughters by the park every day and I see 10 year olds out there playing and I see 85 year olds out there playing. And that to me is super special because obviously the game is going to look different, but these people have, you know, that 10 year old hopefully will be the 85 year old in 70, you know, 70 plus years still playing tennis and enjoying the game. And this sport has given me so much. And so I always enjoy actually spending time with people like that rather than sometimes, you know, the better kids or the better juniors, um, you know, so it's, it's more enjoyable to me sometimes. People invest a lot and they try to get better. And I know that can be frustrating, but at the end of the day, it is a recreational sport. And so I'm always like, when I see someone move to extreme frustration, I'm always kind of like, man. And I remember that when I'm on the golf course, cause that's my yeah. recreation. So if I hit a bad shot, I'm like, ah, like whatever. Like I, you know, I hit, yeah. let's try again, you know, like my friends will laugh at me, but it, it's tough. Like it helps you relax. I think what you're saying, if you can just enjoy it, you relax, yeah. you kind of move a little freer and you will play better. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, I, if I can get out and golf now with two kids, it's I'll hit shank one into the woods. I just laugh because I love golf. I'll play it every day if I could, but I'm out there to have fun. That's my escape from tennis. So, you know, for me, it's, it's one of those things where I'm always, obviously I want to be good because I'm a athlete and a competitor, but you know, I'm not out there competing for the masters. You know, I kind of know my place and you know, it's one of those things. So it's, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic because obviously with all sports, you want to get better but not to the detriment of your overall mental well-being. You know, if you're not having fun, then maybe it's not the right sport for you. That's great advice. Hey, appreciate your time. I know you're busy with the kids and, and you're about to head over for the grass court season. So we wish you all the best and we'll be kind of following you on Tennis Channel, seeing how you do. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to thank Steve for coming on the show today. He's such a fun player to watch, and it's been so cool for me to see his progress from his freshman year in college all the way to top 20 in the world. I liked how he talked about the height on his forehands and the swing thoughts on that shot. But the thing I enjoyed the most was how he tries to make his opponents uncomfortable with his weaker side. He uses his backhand slice, which many view as a weakness, to get back balls that allow him to use his strength, which is his forehand. He keeps the ball low, forces opponents to hit up, and then runs around and cooks forehands. In your next match, see if you can adopt a similar mentality of getting more opportunities with your strength and then committing fully to that shot. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.